Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. I invite you, if you have one, to turn your Bible to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you would like one, we do have some in the back that we've gotten just to give away. Uh, it would be good if you, uh, you know, combine that with your year-long read through the Bible, uh, through the New Testament particularly. They're just on the back table. You can just take one when you leave. That would be fantastic. Um, we're doing something that some of you might not have had the opportunity to do in your life. A lot of times uh, churches will do topical sermons, which mean every Sunday you don't know what you're going to get when you get in. Uh, it's whatever's on the pastor's mind or whatever's uh, the to- what's currently uh, going on in the culture. Uh, our church comes from a tradition in which we teach through books of the Bible. And uh, sometimes we keep it short. We'll do an epistle or we'll do uh, several chapters out of Isaiah or some other book of the Bible just to give you a kind of a sense of the book itself. But this year we're going to study through Mark's gospel. It's the shortest of the gospels. Uh, and so it's the quickest of the gospels. There's not a lot of teaching sections that go through. Uh, there aren't as many parables that are talked about. Uh, it's very fast. The most common word in the book of Mark is and. And Jesus did this. And then Jesus went here. And this is going on. So that's what we're going to do. Now, for those of you who are thinking, we're going to be here for 52 weeks. The answer is, no, we're not actually going to be here for 52 weeks. Uh, We will take a break over the summer, and uh, we'll do psalms over the summer. uh, And then we'll have some guest preachers that will come in over the course of the year. And I'm not going to kind of slide them into our study of Mark. Uh, But when we're together, largely over the course of the next uh, several months, we're going to be doing Mark's gospel together. I hope that sounds okay. I can't think of a better way for me to spend a new year than to say, I'm going to walk with Jesus for the next 52 weeks. Won't that be fantastic? So, uh, if you're willing and able, let me invite you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read just the first book, uh, the first verse of Mark's gospel. We read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. We have an opportunity uh, this year, Lord Jesus, to walk with you. Providentially, this is what you've chosen for our little church body to go through and those who are guests here and maybe curious about who you are and the claims of the gospel, for them to encounter you firsthand through the pages of Scripture. We pray that you would meet with all of us. For those of us who have lived for years walking with you, we ask, Lord Jesus, that all of the misconceptions that we have, all of the things that we think we know but are wrong, that you would expose those, uh, that we would see you afresh Uh, that all the cultural detritus and the things we've heard over years that have not been quite right, the things that we have brought to the table, that you would take those away and that we would see Jesus as you truly are, the great and glorious King. Would you bless us? Would you be with us this morning? Would you be with me? Uh, It would be so much better if you were here teaching, but you've called me to do that. So I pray that you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to hold forth words of life uh, through such a weak and miserable instrument. Bless us and be with us, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Please be seated. So at Christmas, uh, we just read through Matthew and Luke and John, and when we had our wonderful lessons and carol service here where we all gathered at tables, that was fantastic. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we've read Matthew and Luke and John, but typically people don't read Mark 
in the Christmas account because Mark doesn't have a Christmas account. He doesn't really cover that at all. In fact, he doesn't, if you look at the, the last part, he doesn't really talk that much about the resurrection appearance. There's a, the women say they see it, but Jesus doesn't show up in the upper room discourse or anything else. It's, it's pretty sparse. And Mark is just focusing on the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry when he came onto the public scene up until the point he died and the claim is there that he's resurrected. He's focusing on that because those three years changed the world. Now, this is a quote from a guy named uh, Larry Hurtado. He's got a book called The Destroyer of the Gods, and he's, this is a quote from him. He said uh, about, the, about the growth of the Christian church in the first three centuries, he said, to take a set of estimates now often cited by scholars, now, not everybody would say this, but most scholars will agree to this, he says, there may have been about 1,000 Christians in 40 A.D., about seven to 10,000 by 100 A.D., about 200,000 or a bit more by 200 A.D., and by 300 A.D., perhaps five to six million. Exponential growth, all because of the proclamation of who Jesus is. There's a man named uh, James. I got it. It was attributed originally to James Hef Hefley, but... Uh, it's also attributed to a guy named James Allen Francis. I don't know who it came from. But uh, he talks about the impact of Jesus on the centuries since his life, his death, and his resurrection. Listen to this. This is an extended quote, so you can just read along with me. He said, Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with the world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. He rises from the dead. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. It was the power of his life. Just him, his life. He himself is the centerpiece of all of human history, and it's because of his identity, who he actually was and is, what he actually accomplished because of his character, so that when you begin to look at the world and look at what Christians say, it's not a moral philosophy. It's about this person. It's about Jesus. So Mark's point is this. Jesus' life and identity matters who he was how he lived what he accomplished so mark was writing in the first century about why jews were becoming christians he was writing about to inform people about why greeks and romans were becoming christians 
He was writing into a culture in which people were wondering why these Christians were willing to be imprisoned and even die for what they believed. They were, for this man, he was writing to a group of people who uh, were curious about why the Christians were worshiping this man. He was writing to a group of people to explain to them why Christians believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and has now ascended into heaven. And he's writing to persuade people that Jesus should be the center of our lives. And so we have the opportunity uh, to ask ourselves a question as we begin studying this uh, for the new year. Is what's at the center of our lives? Jesus is the centerpiece of history. Is he the centerpiece of our lives? I think it's a fair question. It's a question I have to ask myself all the time. Uh, it's a fair question. So what we're doing is we're going to stop. And uh, I have terrible eyes, and so I have to go to the... Uh, the uh, I was going to say the dentist, but that just showed my ignorance. The ophthalmologist every year. And if I went to the dentist for my eyes, that explains so much. Um, so the ophthalmologist, and you know, they put those kind of like weird glasses on your face, and you're like, uh, which is clearer, A or B? And they do that thing, right? So they're, they're checking your focus. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, he's, he's giving us the lens by which we're supposed to view the whole of everything he writes. And he tells us this, he, he starts with this electrifying statement the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So three points today. Uh, I think you have them properly. An unavoidable truth, an unavoidable person, and an undeniable need. So the first of those, the undeniable truth. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now gospel for us is a religious term typically, uh, and sometimes it's taken out of religious background for us, religious connotations to talk about something being the gospel truth, right? We were just almost like a religious fervor attached to it. But when Mark wrote this, the word gospel did not really have the religious connotation that it does for us today. It simply meant news. And so in that sense, it's less like a theological book and more like the headlines of a newspaper, right? So headlines of a newspaper, New York Times, April 16th, 1912. Titanic sinks four hours after hitting iceberg. Headline, Daily Mail, October 25th, 1929, the greatest crash in Wall Street's history. Headline, Daily Mail, May 8th, 1945, VE Day, it's all over, right? It's all over. So in each of these cases, they're not asking your opinion or preferences. They're not trying to persuade you of something. They're telling you the facts. This is what happened. This is news. And that's what's going on here with Mark begins his gospel. Is he saying this is an announcement. This is something that really happened in the real world. Mark is giving us news. Now there's an inscription from around the time period of, uh, that Mark was writing in Jesus just a little bit before. And uh, it, the, the inscription says, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. It's the story of the birth and the coronation of the Roman emperor at that time period. So it's news. And Mark is using this in roughly the same way. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history. Now, understand how different this immediately makes uh, this than religious writings. Because when we think about what religion is, religion is about something that we do. It's about what we do. But when you actually begin to look at uh, what the scripture teaches, the gospel is not about what we do. It's not about moral philosophy or moral principles. The gospel is about something that God has done. 
So I was having a conversation with a guy not too long ago. And uh, he was talking about being a Christian. And he said, you know, I'm a Christian. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. And I immediately thought, this guy doesn't really understand what the gospel of Jesus is all about. It's not taking on a moral philosophy. It's, un- it's accepting the news that, of what God has done through Jesus Christ on our behalf. So the gospel is headlines, it's, it's information, it's, it's news bulletin, it, it changes everything. It's the proclamation of Jesus. So when God tells us these things here, and Mark tells us at the beginning of Mark, he's not asking our permission, he's not asking our opinion, he's not even saying, I want you to believe this necessarily, because believing it won't make it true. He's saying this is true regardless of whether you believe it or not. It's true, and you may believe it. It's true, and you may rebel against it, as did Jesus' contemporaries. But he's saying, this is true in everything. So he's calling us to believe and accept the headlines. But it's not just news. Uh, The word for gospel in the Greek takes the word message, angelion, and adds two little letters to the front of it, a little E and a little U. And what that does is it makes it into joyful news. So this is news that brings Joy. So it's good news in the sense that it radically changes everything, but it changes it for the better. Now, some of you have uh, maybe in the past couple of years have gotten word that your grandchildren, your your children are having grandchildren for you. That's good news of great joy that shall be for just your family, not for the whole world. That was Jesus, but for you, it's it changes things for you when you find out your your children are getting married. That changes things for you. When Rebecca and I had our first children, we got the good news that we were expecting our first and all of our energy now centered around this child and getting the room ready, getting everything ready for this child coming into our lives. It changed everything. This is part kind of what he means here is the good news of who Jesus is now changes everything. He steps, he steps into the center of the world and steps into the center of our lives because what he's telling us here is not simply that it's good news, but... Um, it's an unavoidable person. Mark 1, 1 again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we're, we're really quick to read that word Christ again as a, as a religious term, and it partially is. Um, it, 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 we think it means the saver of sins, but it's a word that goes back to the Old Testament, the Messiah or the anointed one. And there were three anointed offices in the Old Testament that Jesus embodied all of them. One was that of prophet who makes God known to the world. He brings God's word. The priest was the person who offered intercession for sins. And then the king was the person who ruled over God's people in God's name. And so the Christ or the Messiah, Jesus, he holds all three of these anointed offices. All three of them. And I think this is important in some ways because we have to wrap our minds around how significant it was that Mark was telling people that Jesus is the Christ, which is not his last name, but it's a title referring to it. Because they had a holistic view of life that's very different from ours. So in our world, we divide things very clearly between what we might call church and state, right? We keep these two things separately. Separate. And, you know, we learn from European wars and those kind of things that, you know, there's some good in doing that. Or we divide things into sacred and secular. And so the, sac- the sacred stuff is just personal. It's just you. It's your opinions. It's your faith. It's all these things. Secular is what's real. 
in their culture, they didn't have those kinds of distinctions. That was, that's a product of the Enlightenment, truly. It's not really a product of just human things. That's the way we conceptualize the world. We're going to divide these things up. It'll be easier for us. But for them, as they were thinking about Jesus as the Messiah, this was the anointed king over all things, sacred and secular, a sanctioned by the God of the universe, but in their minds, he was the true king, a descendant of David, the deliverer, the conqueror, the rescuer, who would save them from the oppression of Rome. So there were certainly political overtones that were taking place for them at that time period. But Jesus is the king. Our president's not the Messiah. Do I need to tell you that? Okay, we're not going to go. So, five, and there are five features of the Messiah, things that they were looking for this Messiah to do that they saw from the Old Testament. One, he was a man of God's choice who was worthy of that position. You didn't run for that office. God chose you for that office. Second, he was appointed to accomplish a redemptive goal towards God's people, our rescue. Three, he would bring judgment on God's foes and remove them so they're no longer a threat. Four, he, the Messiah was given dominion over all the nations of the world. Not just Jerusalem, not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. And number five, in all his activities, the real agent is God himself. So Mark is telling us that's who, that's who Jesus is. He's God's champion. He's God's conqueror. He's God's sanctioned, appointed, anointed king over all things. He's the eternal ruler who will bring God's kingdom and a new age of peace, righteousness, plenty, and joy. All that we know and hope for that is never accomplished in our lives in this world he says Jesus is going to bring that in someday, one day. Jesus is the sovereignly appointed king over the universe. And what Jesus came to do, and you see this through the New Testament, is Jesus came to unite all things under himself. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we read, God intends to bring all things in heaven and earth together under the headship of one person, the Christ, just him. They will all be characterized by his qualities, his values, his goals, his glory. Jesus is going to transform everything so that it fits his holy, perfect, just, and peaceful way of thinking. Everything. Whereas what we touch, we make into a brothel, we make into a war zone, we make into a cage match, we make it something volatile. Jesus, when he touches it and, bring, and brings his reign and rule, he transforms it into a hospital, a library, a theater, a stadium, a zoo, a national park, a home for his people. And he makes those who were enemies his children. He makes those who were prostitutes into saints. And he makes those who were Pharisees free. And this is God's intent for the world. Uh, and it's glorious. And it's reality. It's not religion. And so what Mark is announcing is the good news, the proclamation that the Holy One of God, the Son of God has come to earth, and he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords, and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God. And you have to understand, he's speaking into a context in which the greatest military power of the day is Rome, and the greatest ruler of the day is Caesar, and he's saying Jesus easily defeats Caesar and the power of Rome. Because Jesus is God's true anointed king. Jesus has come to overturn regimes, cast down wicked rulers, to cast out all wickedness. He has come to change the world. He's come to tear down the old world, to redeem the world, and to make a new one. And his resurrection gives me the hope of heaven. And his character 
and his power give me hope for the earth. All right? Jesus is going to have absolute power. That's a scary thought because there are plenty of people that I do not want to have any power, let alone have absolute power. Uh, I don't want Putin to have absolute power. I'm glad Napoleon didn't have absolute power. I don't want any of our presidents to have absolute power. And you're thinking about the current ones, but I'm thinking about Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. I don't want them to have absolute power. And guess what? I don't want me to have absolute power. And I don't want you to have absolute power. Absolutely not. But I want Jesus to have absolute power because I see him in the pages of this gospel and I see what he does and I see how he uses power. He uses power for love for God and love for other people. There's this beautiful story where he is going, a man has come to him, his daughter is sick, they're going to the man's house. The daughter is is deathly ill. The man is desperate to get to the house and for Jesus just to lay his hands on his daughter. And while they're on the way there, they get news that the daughter has died. And so the man is completely undone by this. And Jesus says, just believe. So Jesus goes into the house and says to the little girl, Talitha Kaum, which means get up little girl. And she gets up. Jesus used his power to overcome death. He used his power to overcome the demonic. Jesus used his power to overcome disease. And I want him to be here to bring that rule and that reign to this place. And so what God's plan with Jesus is not simply to say, hey, when you die, you can go and be with Jesus. God's design is for Jesus to come back here and to take everything that we can see in here in this place and renew it and make it new. And to remove all of those broken things. That's the hope of the gospel. Not simply that we'll go to heaven. But that Jesus will bring heaven to earth. And we'll have both here. The best of everything right here. The man of heaven and the man of earth right here. And we'll have it all right here. And that's fantastic. And it's not going to be done, by the way, until he comes back. So putting our hope and our trust into our human institutions is not going to work. It's going to disappoint us. We should be involved. We can be involved. But that's not where our hope lies. It lies in his reign. He's the soul Christ. So he's the uh, unavoidable person. We're all going to have to appear before him someday. And then Jesus uh, has come to meet the undeniable need. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Jesus' name means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. It's the, the Greek version of the Old Testament name Joshua. And so it means Yahweh saves. And it's highlighting that Jesus is the one who embodies all of God's redemptive promises in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, but that's what the whole Old Testament is about. I came across a little blog post or something online and I, I love the way they said this. It said, from beginning to end, Scripture presents God as a Savior. And the culmination of a saving work began with the birth of Jesus. Now, it had been taking place, but the finality that God's bringing, it started with the birth of Jesus. So Jesus saves, the Lord saves through him. And that has really two points that we need to talk about. One is that we, uh, one we just mentioned, and I'm going to cover it again because I know it's, it's new for some of us is Jesus is going to make all things new. There's something horribly wrong with the world, so that no matter how many times we try to fix it, it doesn't stay fixed. 
So here's a story from Christmas. Uh, we have some friends up in the upstate of South Carolina, and I guess it was about a year and a half ago, they got their dream car. It was a used car, but it was German manufactured, and they loved their car. Um, so they drove it for a little bit, and then it started to have some trouble. And their German-made car, their in, the engine was basically kaput, uh, but it was still under warranty. So they've, even though they were the second owner, there was something to do with the contract, with the original purchase of this vehicle, that as long as it was still under warranty, they would take care of any problem. So they came and replaced the engine. And it was like getting a brand new car. They thought this is fantastic. But then in the intervening months, their German-engineered car began to have uh, electrical issues and micro, you know, like computer chip issues and just was dying on them. So they did something they've never done back in November. Uh, they bought a new car, a Hyundai. Hyundai, Hyundai? Those of you who own, is it Hyundai or Hyundai? Hyundai, I say Hyundai, Hyundai. They said Hyundai. They're British, so there you go. Um, and so they got a Hyundai, and as soon as they're driving off the lot, the air tire pressure gauge symbol comes on. Like, oh, come on, brand new. It has, it has eight miles on it. That's it, like eight miles. They're driving off the lot, and, the, and so they turn back in. They drive it in. They say, oh, it's just an air pressure thing. We'll just need to fill it up with air. So they filled it up. Fantastic. For two days. Two days they're back in with another tire problem. So the little gauge light is on. They drive back in. And that, well, it's just the, the air. We'll put more air in it. So, uh, you know, it was, it was probably cold, you know, up in, in South Carolina. <laughs> they came back a couple of days later with the same issue. And so they kept running to this issue. And so finally my friend got out and he started examining the tire. And it had this huge industrial nail right through the middle of it that everybody was missing. And when they were telling us the story, I was thinking... That's a great picture of the new year, isn't it? Is it seems like every new year, there's a nail right through the tire, right? Last year, what was it? We're all getting ready for Ukraine and, and for Russia and what was going to go down with that. The year before that, do you remember what it was? January 6th. The year before that? COVID. COVID. Right, we keep going back. There's always a nail in the tire. We get this new vehicle. We think it's pristine. This is going to solve all of our issues. And it just doesn't. The reason Jesus is coming, the Bible says, and he tells us this at the end. In Revelation, he says, Jesus is coming back so there will be no more crying or mourning or tears or pain. There will be no more nails through the tire because the nails went through Jesus' hands. We're going to be okay in the future and Jesus is going to hold us until then. But in this world, we're going to have some hard things that will happen. But he's got us, and he's made promises for the future to re renew all things then, not now. He renews us in our hearts, but not the world yet. But then there's a second thing, and this is the thing we most often think about, is Jesus has come to redeem our lives. He, he died for our sins. So our sins are placed upon Jesus. And at the cross, he bore our sins in his body on the tree to pay for the penalty. But then he gives us his righteous life so that we are clothed fully and completely in his righteousness. And how important this is because we have a sense. We have a sense that no matter how good we are in comparison to other people, which is why we compare ourselves to other people, is because we have something wrong with us. There's a great uh, little two-word line from G.K. Chesterton from years ago uh, where somebody had written into the newspaper asking, what's wrong with the world today? 
And he wrote a letter back and he said, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. There's something wrong with all of us. Well, we were at our men's Bible study a couple of weeks ago and, and we were just talking about this uh, amongst ourselves. As, you know, as you get older, you kind of have this sense of, have I done enough? Have I done enough? If, if, if I show up to heaven, have I done enough to where God will look at me and say, hey, you've done everything you're supposed to, come on in. But that's not the question, is it? The question is, has Jesus done enough? And the answer is, absolutely. He did it on the cross, and he did it during those three years, and his three years of perfect living is counted as ours, and our sin is counted as his. He's paid for it all. He has done enough. And when you understand how messed up you are, then you can say, I just give it all to Jesus. It can't be in my hands whatsoever. Alice, Alice DeBeg said, when you dis- understand that Jesus came for someone messed up like you, you will reach out for him with both of your hands. We reach out for him with both of our hands. And as you begin to look through Mark's gospel, this is what you see. There is not a single person that Jesus comes to and he says, you've been doing the whole thing right. There's not a single person that Jesus says, you've been killing it. You've been living the best life here now. You don't need me whatsoever. No, you see people whose lives are broken, hearts are broken, minds are broken, the relationships are broken, and Jesus steps into the middle of that, and he brings his forgiveness and his grace time after time, and that's what your story is, and that's what my story is. You know what my story is? My story is not about how I grew up, and I overcame my sin, and I became a pastor, and I began to plant a church. That's not my story. The story of my life is a story of grace. God has showed me much grace. I have showed little gratitude, and he still has shows me much grace. That's the story of my life. And I won't understand how much he's really done until I get there, and guess what? It probably won't ma- my gratitude probably won't match the size of the gift. And it doesn't matter if you have like strong faith or weak faith. This is a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, a man of strong faith is happier, but he is not more truly saved than a man of weak faith. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, that's enough. To believe in him, not in yourself, right? So believe these three things. One, the story, the good news. This is the world we live in. I need a savior, an unavoidable person, Jesus. I believe him. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the third thing that we believe, God's provision, the Lord saves. So I believe the story, I believe the person, and I believe the provision that God has made for me in Jesus. I trust that fully and completely. And when you trust this fully and completely, you enter right in. I love this, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit more next week and the implications, but Mark begins by saying, the beginning, right? And so there's some, a lot of implications with that word, but one of the words, uh, one of the ways I think you can take that is, this is just the beginning, down through the centuries. Jesus is still rescuing and he's still saving people. He's bringing them to faith in him. He's bringing them into his kingdom and they're experiencing the transforming presence of this great king, the unavoidable person. He steps in. So I like to read um, conversion stories. I like to read people's, uh, uh, how they came to faith. And I came across one this past week uh, by a woman by the name of Rosalind Picard. She's an MIT professor. And she's worked on like wristbands and those kind of things to alert families when a family member has an epileptic seizure and those kinds of things. Uh, so she's doing some incredible work. She's a Christian. And she tells her story. She said when she was younger, she used to think that religious people were, and this was her word, 
ignoramuses. So we were ignoramuses to her. Uh, she's smart. She said smart people didn't need religion, and so she was a self-proclaimed atheist. But she also, when she was younger, she made a little money on the side uh, babysitting. And this one couple that she adored, uh, pay, probably paid her pretty well too, um, they were a doctor and his wife in town, sharp. She loved them. They were funny, fun to be with. And one day after she'd been babysitting for them for a while, she, they asked her to go to church with her, uh, with them. And uh, so Sunday morning came and she got a tummy ache. So she didn't go. And then the next week, oh, she got a tummy ache. And she said she was running out of excuses and they were realized she's not ever going to accept uh, our invitation for her to come uh, to worship. So they said, you know, it's not really about coming to church. Uh, have you ever thought about reading the Bible? And so they gave her a Bible, and she said, you know, I thought I'd probably need to, needed to read the world's most important book. You know, everybody's read the Bible, so I'll read it. And they told her to start in the book of Proverbs of all places, because I would start probably in the Gospels myself. But they had her go to Proverbs, and so she's reading through the Proverbs, and she's finding two things are taking place. One is the Proverbs were immensely practical for the real world. She thought she was going to hear like miracle stories and like outlandish stuff in her mind, but it's intersecting with her life. And that's the first thing she didn't expect. But the second thing she didn't expect was this. She didn't expect to have the sense that someone was personally having a conversation with her while she's reading the Bible. And so she began to continue to read her Bible. She went to college. She ended up... Um, coming across a verse that she said was really troubling for her. She said there were two passages I found especially troubling. One is in Matthew 10, where, in which Jesus says, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And then in Matthew 12, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And this is what uh, Rosalind said, she said, I resented what felt like an unwelcome ultimatum. She said, I didn't want to believe in God, but I still, I still felt that peculiar sense of love and presence when I was reading the scripture that I just couldn't ignore. So finally, she said, I felt that I wanted to pray. And she'd been going to a Bible study and started att attending church by this point. And she said, I wanted to pray. And she said, she prayed as she believed in Jesus. And she said, I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know that I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything there is to know. Today I walk humbly, having received the most undeserved grace. The story, the person, the provision. She believed that completely transformed her life and she's given it to helping other people who are in need and so what we see here is the beginning this is just the beginning other people are brought in jesus jesus is still alive he's risen he's still rescuing people he's still the good news he's still the awe-inspiring person he's still the person we want to rule over the world and over our lives jesus himself is the good news he's come into the world to save and he will not be stopped he has come to conquer death, and he will not be stopped. He has come to bring forgiveness of sins, and he will not be stopped. He has come to change the course of individual human lives, and he will not be stopped. He has come to overthrow all evil, and he will not be stopped. He, is, he will come one day to renew the world, and he will not be stopped. He's the sovereign king of the universe, and the good news that changes everything 
is that he has come to save. So Mark begins with this electrifying phrase, is uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So maybe we fall into one of two categories in this room. Uh, First category is uh, some of us in this room may be still exploring and not very sure about the gospel. We're glad you're here at the church plant. We're glad if we've set a comfortable environment for you to do that. Absolutely. But you still find yourself maybe a little skeptical of the claims of the gospel. And, you know, we understand that. And we want it to be a place where you can ask your questions and find answers uh, for those questions. Uh, but one of the things uh, you might have a question about is, why would we think that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Why would we worship him? We sang a song just before we started looking at this where we're worshiping Jesus. So Christ, our King, Creator, Lord, Savior of all who trust thy word. We sang that. Why? If you're a skeptic in here, if you're kind of skeptical of the claims, you're not so sure about it, um, join us for a year. Walk through the paths of Scripture with us. Come see Jesus face to face. We'd love for you to be a part of that as we explore. And for the rest of us in here uh, who might say, I believe in the gospel. One of the interesting things that I find with me and I find with some of you is as we get older, you get to, Rebecca and I got to this place when we were probably in our 20s, and we thought, well, we've got Christianity figured out now. We know everything. We got Jesus figured out. We know there's nothing new for us to learn. And then about a year later, <laughs> probably after we had our first child, we're, we're reeling and thinking, boy, there's a lot we don't understand. There's a lot we don't understand. And there's a lot we thought we knew that we've had to unlearn. And so Jesus, as he's walking through first century Palestine, walking those roads, He's encountering a lot of religious people who think they know, who think they know better than he knows. And he has to listen to them, tell, give Jesus what for, when he himself knows what's really true. So maybe this will be a year for you uh, to explore, to walk as a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and say, teach me. I need to learn anew these wonderful truths of our faith. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come to you because we know that you hear us as we pray. You hear us as we lift up our hearts and lives to you. And uh, I just said some things that I am convinced are true. Uh, But I have to admit that my heart is hard even to the things that I just said. I need for you to cause that truth to get deeply with inside of me. And I pray for all those who are present here that you would cause these truths to go deeply inside of them. That you would bring faith where there isn't any that you would bring a stronger faith, a strengthened faith to those who have weak faith. And for those whose faith is strong, and, and we pray that you would give opportunity to live it out in a variety of ways. Would you bless us? We are grateful, Lord Jesus, that uh, in the gospel you say our salvation is a done deal. You've accomplished it. It's not on our shoulders. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to rest in you and to live accordingly. Be with us and bless us as we sing this last song we ask in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.